0: Well, hi folks, it's Ron Knight, and with me today we have an eclectic artist, Jane Hamill. Jane Hamill is known for her work on... We're going to go way back here, back to The Nanny with Fran Drescher. She's also known for her work on Word Girl, an animated program, and also Vice Academy 4, and we'll touch on that as well. Jane, who has also been an award winner, a Daytime Creative Arts Emmy Award that she has received for Outstanding Writing in an animated program, and that, of course, was Word Girl. How are you, Jane?
1: Hey, I'm okay.
0: And we're talking to you somewhere at the top of a mountaintop. Uh, Where are you, about 7,000, 14,000 feet? Where are
1: you? (laughs) Not quite, we're uh, 5,500. So, uh, yeah, which is uh, just very uh, livable.
0: Well, it sounds good. And you just kind of got away from the L.A. scene or the Los Angeles uh, the industry for a while or probably for a regular decision here?
1: Uh, Yeah, although, uh, you know, we're two hours from L.A., so if we have any need to go back, uh, it's not that far. (laughs) So meanwhile, we move up here, we buy a cabin. And who's our next door neighbor? The vice president of Cartoon Network.
0: Well. (laughs) Hopefully you get together and bang on his door once in a while and you still find something to do.
1: Yeah, he's got eight Emmys. Uh, You know, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Does that mean mean his eight Emmys got him eight times the size of the cabin? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So this is great. I'm glad you're here and thanks for joining us. You know, you have been a writer, but I know you've also been an actress and an actor and you've also had your hand in directing. It's interesting because I think maybe as a writer, if I could ask you the question, what do you advise other writers? You'll tell me what other people along your path have said, which is to find your own voice. But I want to go into another direction here because you wrote for The Nanny And Fran Drescher, you have to admit, was probably most known for her very unique Brooklyn voice and that character's voice of being the nanny. And she's a unique persona. You know, when you're writing for these various different genres, what are the similarities and yet the differences? Did you find it different when you're writing for something like sitcom and the nanny versus when you're then writing for animation and cartoons? Different audience, different style?
1: Well, one thing I think I mentioned to you was that I got my first animation job because they wanted the show, which happened to be The Proud Family, to be more like a sitcom. It was um, the executive producer of Moesha, who, uh, Ralph Farquhar, who was in charge of that show. And he said, I want this to be a sitcom family, even though it's animation. So that actually helped me in that respect. You talk about various voices. What I found was people say, oh, don't you miss acting? And I go, well, you know when I'm writing? I get to play all the characters. And one thing about, like, when I got hired on The Nanny, really, uh, I'm from Orange County, California. Mm -hmm. Here she had a very New York, Queens point of view and attitude. And it's like, well, how am I going to write for this? But you... Having been an actor, you, you learn to mimic v- certain voices, so to speak. Not only uh, did, we, did we all have our best friend Drescher that we did with a, <laughs> with a nasal quality, but, <laughs> we, uh, but you begin to pick up on where the, where the jokes are that work for her. I remember one day she wanted to do, she was, Fran was in the writer's room a lot the, the second season, the, which is the first season that I was there. And at one point, she wanted to do something about an ice cream called Mr. Softy, which is a New York brand. And she goes, oh, who here isn't from New York? (laughs) So I raise my hand and she goes, oh, would you know that Mr. Softy is an ice cream? I go, yeah, I'd know that. She goes, oh, where are you from? (laughs) I said, Orange County. She goes, how did you get on this show? I said, well, I'm from the same hometown as uh, Steve Martin and Diane Keaton. She goes, oh, funny town. So that's... (laughs) That, that, and I began to just think in those terms, and I learned a lot of Yiddish from uh, the other writers in the room, and I became an honorary Jew (laughs) 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 working on The Nanny. So then I, you know, I had right before then, mostly I'd been working on talk shows, and what I had to do for talk shows was Try to get the host. My portion of the show is usually them sharing something from their lives that would help them connect with the audience out there in TV land.
0: And so, so when you when you when you talk about talk shows, what in specific are we talking about here? I know you were well. The
1: very first one was Jenny Jones, which the show became more famous for having killed a uh, guest. But when it the hmm. first year it was on the air. Well, first I had to go to Vegas and live there for seven weeks at the Excalibur while we did it as a local show out of a TV station in Henderson to teach Jenny how to be a talk show host. And then from there, we went to Chicago for the first year.
0: Now, now I have to touch on that. When you say we are going to teach Jenny how to be a talk show host, what was she and was your role being multiple between writer and then director? Or how did you help shape uh, well, in that process?
1: My role was she had been a stand-up comic. She was the first female comic to win Star Search, which people don't remember, but that was her claim to fame. After winning Star Search, she went on and was the opening act for a lot of uh, Vegas talent like Engelbert Humperdinck and Wayne Newton and people like that. And then as that started to die out for her, she went through her material and said, well, I have a lot of stuff that appeals to women. And I'm going to approach some of these comedy clubs and say, uh, what's your dead night? Is it Monday night? Is it Sunday night? Uh, let me buy out your house for the dead night and I'm going to advertise something called For Women Only, Girls' Night Out. And she went all across the country with this and it got her a lot of focus. And uh, and then she got in Time Magazine with an article because a man sued her saying it was discriminatory that she didn't allow men into the show. And from the powers that be at uh, Telepictures Warner Brothers, they were looking for a new female talk show host. And they went, oh, girls night out for women only. She's got her finger on the pulse of American women. You know, let's, let's give her a talk show. And that's really, really how she got it.
0: Okay. And then how did you get dragged along then as the writer of record? Did you already have a relationship in play that they said you'd better come along here? Because, you know, how did, how did that play through?
1: Well, from uh, my first, one of my first waitress jobs... Uh, one of my customers had hired me to write on a pilot for PBS, which is about people who use humor in the workplace. And I, uh, there, was an, there were two other writers on that particular pilot. And one of them left early, but we got along great. and We used to have coffee and he used to say, gee, we should, we should write together on something. I go, yeah, we should, but you know, nothing ever happened. And then the other writer on that project, had said, oh, I really want to continue writing with you and let's write some spec scripts. And he had just gotten a line producer job at NBC on on a morning show with, some, nobody will know who these people are, Kelly Lang and Gail Parent.
0: You'll <laughs> know who they are. But <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, but I, I get the nobody will know who they are.
1: Yes, but, but. <laughs> and uh, so every afternoon I would have a, a, a drive onto the NBC lot to go meet with him and start working on these potential scripts that we were going to crank out. And I used to say to Scott, I'm not quite sure what we're doing. But what the heck, I'll keep doing it and just see what happens. So I would meet all the various people that were around the Kelly and Gale show. And one day as I'm walking in, the executive producer of the Kelly and Gale show says, Oh, I just interviewed for this, uh, this new talk show, the Jenny Jones show. And they asked me if I knew any female comedy writers. So I told them all about you. It's like, wow, <laughs> okay, and so she said, you may be getting a call from them, and I did, and they had me come in and interview, they gave me some sample materials, some tapes of, of uh, Jenny, and and said, uh, you know, here's some categories, and, and give us some stuff in these categories, and so I did, and came back the next day with all of that, and uh, Jenny reviewed it, and said, yeah, hire her, so, I, and I literally, the day I got hired, they said, well, the last plane to Vegas is at 9 p.m., so you have to be on that. (laughs) And it was like, what?
0: (laughs) Grab your bags and go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So,
0: and there I was for seven weeks. So, there (laughs) you were. And, And I have to ask you, because when you say comedy writer, we're looking for a comedy writer. And obviously, now writing for a sitcom and a unique voice like Fran Drescher at The Nanny, okay, you're a comedy writer. We get that. And you're writing in vain with I would assume some kind of a, a symbiosis or of sorts where you get to know Fran very well. She gets to know you. So you can kind of write and speak on her behalf when you're writing for talk show and they're calling it a comedy writer, usually in a talk show, people are just talking. So what were you doing? Were you writing like opening monologues Is there, or what do you write when you're writing for a talk show?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the first year they weren't quite sure what to do with her. And obviously she'd been a standup comic. So Sometimes she'd have a a kind of a monologue that would tie into whoever some of the guests were that day. Sometimes she'd want to do a prop bit. We even hired some actors from Second City because we were in Chicago and we did some sketches, which, you know, they never do in daytime TV because they're considered death. (laughs) But we did them. (laughs) Uh, we, uh, We even did audience bits where she would go in the audience, which was a little bit like what she did with her girls' night out, which was to kind of pose a question to women in the audience and then get some real stories from these women, stories they might not want to tell in front of their husbands. And so we would do some of that. So ah,
0: you guys were spies. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> you're getting, so, uh, you're getting yeah, every, secret it, stories out.
1: Every day was something different. Trying to sort of find where her sweet spots were. And Jenny really gravitated to that. That was her favorite part of the show because she had come from stand-up. Right. Uh, the, the asking questions and asking a follow-up question of a guest wasn't her forte. And that's what um, our executive producer, who had started Larry King Live, and he, uh, of course, now he's the producer for uh, Judge Judy for years and years, but he was working with her, trying to get her to listen and be able to say, you know, here's the follow-up question. You know, you latch onto this thing that the person said, and now follow it up to get a little more information.
0: And as writer, did you have a hand in somehow being able to say, okay, if this is an answer, then the next series of logical questions that you might write for her, she could kind of springboard to and grab one? Or how did yeah, that affect your mechanics?
1: Sometimes I, yes, sometimes I would kind of go through certain things with her. Or, you know, she'd say, well, what do you think some, some good questions would be that I can get some sort of a fun answer out of them or something like that? So uh, yeah, every day was something different. So and I was learning about talk shows from, from all of that. Uh, and then by the end of the first year, the writing was on the wall. Everything was going tabloid. Jerry Springer had moved in down the hall in Chicago. And uh,
0: those are the shows that were getting the ratings. So those are the shows that took over the presidency of the United States.
1: Exactly. It's <laughs> led us yeah. to where we are now. Yeah. So I went very happily back to Los Angeles and the exec producer from Jenny Jones referred me to some folks that did a lot of network specials, so I did those for a short while, the National Nutrition Test and uh, the Red Cross Emergency Test, and two two different specials about the Miss America pageant back when people actually watched it when it was actually on a network. Uh, those were for NBC and I did the the history of the Miss America Pageant, which was ended up being a lot of fun. I got to see all the old kinescopes and pull out all the funny, funny talent uh, and the disaster talent <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the really funny Q&A that they would do through all the years. So
0: was, was that Q&A or T&A?
1: <laughs> for Miss America?
0: Yeah. Right. They
1: are a scholarship pageant. Ah, right. In fact, I ended up becoming a consultant to the, two of the writers on Miss Congeniality, sharing with them all my, all my pageant information, all my Miss America information. There is a running gag in Miss Congeniality where she always corrects people that it's a scholarship pageant, which comes right from the Miss America Foundation
0: interesting so okay so you've gone from sitcom you've gone to talk show chronology is different there but essentially you've been in both genres between sitcom talk show and then you have these other credits I mean you were on what still standing with CBS somehow you get over into animation through the Disney corridor of proud family but your credits you know you go into word girl nature cat for PBS talking Tom and friends for somewhere in Vienna Slovenia how did you then migrate over into into the cartoon animation side of things?
1: Well, once I finished Still Standing, I got diagnosed with breast cancer, which uh, was kind of a, a shock and sort of put my career on hold for a year. And then just as I sort of came back into the world, they had the Writers Guild strike and that took out another year of my life. And about that time, I had uh, just been in touch with one of the other writers on Still Standing. And he said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm working on something called uh, Word Girl. And uh, you were on Proud Family. Gee, I, I'd love to give you an assignment. I said, wow, that would be great. And this was around the end of 2008. He said, well, it doesn't work till 2010. <laughs> I said, well, all right. Uh, I don't have a calendar to write that in right now. But I, once that date rolled around, I... I wrote an episode for them. They really liked it and had me come back and had me come back again and again. And uh, so that sort of launched me into more animation. The person that I knew left Word Girl, but a new person came on. And after (laughs) they canceled Word Girl, and then it won all these Emmys. So then they brought it back. But then they only brought it back one season, and then they canceled it again. So he went on to something in North Korea called the Vroomies, which were cars that were also animals, because they learned that little kids like cars and animals, so they put them together. That was for South Korea, and I, so I worked on that for him. Then he also led me to a show in Spain. It was out of Madrid. I think they ended up calling it the Pinny Pun Institute of New York, and that was with a character that's considered Spain's Barbie, the pinny pon girls. And they all attend a fashion institute in New York. <laughs> uh, don't ask me why New York and not Spain. But I did some of that for him. In the meantime, the person who first led me to Word Girl was working for Talking Tom and Friends, which is an app. It's also, and it's its own show on the internet. And it's created by Slovenians, but... They, uh, the artists are in Vienna. The actual mechanics of the show are done in Vienna. But the writers and the talent are all in Los Angeles. Okay.
0: Well, it's a very global industry as far as getting these things done now, isn't it?
1: It is. In fact, that was one of the things I was going to touch on for writers out there. In 2011, Sony called me and said, uh, we want to send you to Sao Paulo, Brazil to start The Nanny as a local show there. And that's something Sony had been doing. Very smart move on their part. You know, they still own all the scripts for all their shows. And yes, their shows had been in these countries dubbed, but, you know, they were more uh, USA jokes. Uh, A lot of the things didn't translate as well.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, like, comedy is very much cultural and genre specific and very much idiom regionalism specific. I, that's really odd. You take a Japanese corporation called Sony with a comedy about a very New York Jewish kind of a regionalism and then throw it down to Brazil. And what do you got? I mean, especially with translating it into Portuguese. I mean, I was told lots of stories down in Brazil about what was it Marlboro, you know, the cigarette company It was British American mm-hmm. tobacco. And they kept promoting Marlboro down there with what used to be, remember the Marlboro man? He was like the real rugged cowboy guy. And they would spend millions and millions and millions of dollars promoting the Marlboro cowboy. And the Brazilians would tell them, you don't want to use a cowboy image down here, down here that's called a gaucho and gauchos are not a symbol of, of wellness or success. I mean, that's a real hard, rugged, poor person's life. that gets thrown to the, you know, out into the agrarian world. Nobody wants to be a gaucho. And uh, British American Tobacco and Marlboro kept saying, no, he's our logo, he's our icon. And they kept spending millions and millions and even threw more millions of dollars at that. And the more they spent, the more millions and more millions of dollars of bad advertising on that icon, the more the sales of Hollywood and Galaxy brand cigarettes went up.
1: See, there you go. Well, (laughs) what, what, what Sony got smart about is we own all these scripts. Let's take them. And the first country they went to was Russia. Let's take these scripts, cast the show locally, go in and put local jokes in there and take out all the dated stuff or things that absolutely don't translate. And they created their own show. And The Nanny was like a huge hit in Russia to the point that they came back to the original writers and said, we need more scripts. They, they don't want the show to end. So we're not going to go as far as the wedding yet. We need to keep extending the show out. So I wrote six more scripts about, you know, seven years after the show had been off the air.
0: Now, are you writing though in the genre that was acceptable of the comedic idioms of what would have been you know, acceptable or funny in Russia?
1: Well, since we really didn't have access to that, they said, go ahead and write them the way you would. But we've been working with writers in Russia who have gone into the old scripts and figured out how to you know, change it to their format. And they'll go into the uh-huh. ones and change anything that doesn't, doesn't translate for them. That was Russia. And now The Nanny was their first hit. And it was in, and still is, I guess, in 19 countries. It was in Poland. She's not even Jewish in Poland. <laughs> they were going to make her Italian in Brazil. They were, you know, They were changing it depending on where they were. Also, just little things, uh, the, the level of wealth of the family that she was working for was a little foreign to some of these countries. I, I talked to one of the uh, directors who had worked in Poland. He said little things like, first of all, ha- opening the refrigerator and having a light come on was foreign to them. So he, they, he said, well, let me teach you how we can do this. And he said, and then also they're a rich family they need to have a lot of food in the refrigerator (laughs) (laughs)
0: well it makes sense (laughs)
1: yeah yeah so anyway so i went down to brazil thinking that i was going to get this started i taught taught a seminar on how to write for the nanny which they had a translator to translate it into portuguese fortunately everyone but two people there uh spoke english as well so she just huddled with the two that didn't in the corner and quietly translated and then I was working closely with this writer who had a foot both in American culture and in, he was Brazilian, but he, he had a long history of watching American television and being schooled in Americanisms. And so he had been working on a telenovela that was very popular, and he was going to be their go-to guy who was going to head this, then I would go back after so many weeks I would go back to L.A. and they would translate the scripts that he was working on, send them to me, and I would approve them or, or, you know, say, oh, maybe you need to do this or this, just to make sure to keep the nanny voice. Also, they needed to add, you know, usually there was an A plot and a B plot, but they needed to sometimes add a C plot because they could sell more advertising time. So they didn't care if the show ended right at thirty minutes. If they could, they'd go to thirty-eight minutes if they could sell that extra advertising time.
0: Wow, you'd think there would be time limitations on a broadcast cycle. Not not in so much in today's you know video on demand and streaming, but in those days when everything was by the clock, you'd think that would kind of offset a whole broadcast schedule.
1: Yeah. Well, then as it turned out the guy that i was training really just used the opportunity of this job to get a better deal from his telenovela people and a promise of a film script and about and to create his own telenovela and he quit on them and in brazil you don't just go there's there's no agency to go to to get your next writer it was a very specialized set of circumstances that had to come together to find the right person and by the time they looked around and, and did an outreach. The conglomerate that was going to back this whole thing pulled out. So that never happened in Brazil. But the nanny was in Argentina. Oh, it's in a bunch of countries. Anyway, 19- Yeah, that's, yeah
0: it. that's a lot. And then for you, I mean, as well, because you've been all over the spectrum as a comedy writer and yet the animation cartoon writer. When you get into something like Word Girl, which is ironic because you get your you get your Emmy for a show that's been canceled, what, twice? Yeah. <laughs> but but, but that's, that's irony at its best. But you probably had to find a very uh, different form of humor for something like Word Girl or you know, the softer content for kids, maybe the preschool set. So when you're writing for that, certainly not writing in the same genre of multiple entendres of nanny jokes, right?
1: exactly although you know the word girl was a lot of fun in that i always used to say it had sort of a fractured fairy tale vibe in that she would break the fourth wall and talk to the narrator there was a lot of fun to be had but in a very sly and different way the animators uh would have fun a lot of times in animation they can't draw different clothes So your characters wear the same clothes all the time. And in one day they had her closet door open and she had 15 outfits all the same uh, hanging in the (laughs) closet. So it was learning to, uh, learning, of course she had to, um, you know, her thing was that she had crash landed on Earth. And she was disguised as this, this ordinary little girl, Becky Botsford, and got adopted by this family. But she would have to turn into Word Girl and save the town from all these villains. There were like 15 different villains that kept attacking this town. And all of them were challenged with their vocabulary. So she would have to explain to them what words meant and and spell it out for them. It was very frustrating for her. But we had a lot of fun with that. But you had to learn how to sort of explain these words for kids because it was based Saw themselves as being from like four to nine years old, somewhere in that area.
0: That's a pretty good spread right about there. And there's a very big, very big dynamic of learning difference in developmental psychology in that spread. I mean, you know. Before kindergarten, all the way up to the fourth grade, that's, a, that's pretty diverse.
1: You know, the younger kids didn't really realize that they were picking up on stuff. And, uh, and then the older kids, I, I remember they showed us some video once. Uh, they had shown several WordGirl episodes to some kids, sort of like a focus group. <laughs> and one girl, she was probably about seven years old. She turned to the camera and she went, I really like it when WordGirl is sarcastic. Ha <laughs> ha.
0: Like, okay. Out of the the mouths of babes. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. It's amazing. So there's a couple of things I want to touch on here before we get ready to wrap. And that is, I also know that you were working on a very different kind of animation. And it kind of throws back to the uh, crossover between animation cartoons and what used to be merchandising in the toy industry. And there's still some alliances, but not like there used to was in the 80s. Barbie's Dreamhouse Adventures. Now you did that for Mattel. And for Netflix, what's. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: Netflix uh, had this deal with Mattel. I guess they have several deals with Mattel. And uh, this was a series they wanted to do. And again, a little bit of a sitcom because it's Barbie's about 17 years old and still living with her family in Malibu. (laughs) And uh, that was that was quite a challenge because Mattel is is very corporate. Very corporate and there's
0: things. Yeah, should... I was going to ask, I mean, you're not writing like the typical, I would, you know, I met, I used to work with Patrick Carlin, who was George Carlin's older brother. And oh, he used to yeah. write for Chuck Barris, you know, on the gong show. Sure. And, and he would say that the writers always have a task of just taking pencils and throwing them up in the ceiling. You remember the acoustical tiles tiles in the ceiling that had a little white with little black holes in it and they were soft. And he said, you know, whatever pencil would stick in the ceiling, that's the person that came up with the idea that would get written into the gong show. (laughs) But when I think of that creative process of a writer's team, then I think about like you're expressing Mattel was not only corporate Mattel had a huge background in military infrastructure and supplies so I would think that writing anything in that regard wouldn't be too whimsical, improvisational, off the cuff—you know, just free reins of creativity. What was writing for you like on something like that when you're supposed to have the reins of writing script?
1: It was—it was tough uh, because it, you had to stay within s- such uh, narrow parameters of what she could and couldn't do. There was no romance allowed, even though Ken was a next-door neighbor. I mean, he was also like 17, but they didn't realize they were attracted to each other.
0: Um, there were I think in the physical dolls, they don't have genitalia, right?
1: Yes. Well, I, I have an <laughs> it's old- It's
0: probably, probably reflected that way in the cartoons.
1: <laughs> exactly. I had an old joke about that. I said, well, Ken, don't have genitalia because Mattel had hoped it could be sold separately. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. As, as everything is with um, Barbie and Ken. But, yeah, that was, that was a real challenge because you'd go in one day and, and the exec producer on that would say, I really want Barbie to be all about her hair. It's like, oh, okay. But we can't really do different hairdos for her, okay? <laughs> and Barbie's, you know, about thousands and thousands of clothes, but we can't do different outfits on her, Okay. All right, Uh, I had an episode where they were going to go back in time and pretend to live like a pioneer family out in the backyard. It was going to be a little experiment for the family. And it's like, oh, great, I can put her in a long skirt. Oh, no, no, we can't have any different costumes or (laughs) anything. So yeah, there were challenges doing that. Uh, I was proud of what I ended up with, but um, it was tough. It was very tough yeah,
0: sounds like it would be but you got through and hopefully at the end of the day you got paid so
1: uh, yes yeah and Barbie did pay well I will give her that
0: yeah I'll bet I mean, so you
1: mentioned, you mentioned the gong show so did you uh, work at all with Chris Beard
0: no it wasn't I who worked the gong show it was, uh, oh, it was yeah it was Pat Patrick, oh, Patrick. Who worked the okay. gong show. Yeah. I
1: met him once on I was auditioning for a show called thick of the night uh, Oh, with Alan thick yeah exactly And he was very nice and uh, introduced himself to me and and was very complimentary. We went in and we did tons of sketches. I mean, Jim Carrey was auditioning at that time, Uh, Teresa Ganzel. Anyway, we got called back so many times they had to pay us. So that gives you a But at the end of the day they they went with other people, however, it was very nice to meet him. Uh, he was a, he seemed like a great guy.
0: Yeah, I think Chuck Barris is in many ways, probably one of the great understated developers in comedy genres of all time. I mean, he was just such a whack muffin on television at the end of the day. and I think the Gong show was well, it was the gong show, but A lot of people that I had known that got a chance to work with him spoke uh, very, very highly of him. I want to touch on your very, very brief before we get ready to, to go here. You had a history in Las Vegas, and of all the genres that you wrote for, whether it was sitcom, talk show, animation, cartoons, you even had your hand in what we'll call game show or reality uh, television. What were you doing back in Las Vegas, kind of coming around full circle? Weren't you doing something for Vin DiBona?
1: Yes. In fact, I mentioned Chris Beard a few moments ago. I met Chris Beard when I came back from working with Jenny Jones in Chicago. And just before I started working on network specials, I worked on Mo Gaffney's talk show, and then I worked on Suzanne Summers talk show. Oh, uh, wow, my
0: God. It's the graveyard of talk shows out there.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, I, I just worked on the pilot for Suzanne Summers, But that's where I met Chris Beard because he was executive producing that show. And he, you know, co-created the Gong Show with Chuck Barris. Then he went on to be executive producer of Sonny and Cher and putting on the hits He's got quite the resume. He passed away just a couple of years ago, and we really miss him. He was, he was a very, very originally funny guy. He started out on laughing as a writer and just kept going from there. But he and I bonded on that show, and he said, you know, I'm thinking, I think I'm going to be selling a show with Vinda Bona, a sitcom, really, but it was a single camera. And he said, if that happens, then I'm going to hire you. And that happened just before The Nanny. We did three episodes of it, something called Sherman Oaks. And it essentially was the conceit of uh, someone's filming a documentary about a family that feels they are the perfect American family. Of course, they're the most messed up family that could ever happen. Anyway, so I worked on that uh, and essentially dipped my toe into sitcom with that. And then, you know, kind of went away. So I went back to whatever I was working on. And, and then the nanny came along. In the middle of working on the nanny, They Showtime picked up Sherman Oaks. And they offered me story editor and a two-year deal and all kinds of things. And I went to the nanny producer and said, I think I want to leave. And they said, no, you can't leave. But you know what? We'll give you the same deal they've got. They've offered you. And so they must have thought I was the greatest negotiator because... I ended up with everything that Showtime was offering wow. on Annie, But when I got done with all of that, I still stayed in touch with Chris. And Chris was developing crazy, wacky game shows with DeBona. And so he brought me in on the pilots for those shows. And that's how I ended up in Vegas with uh, something he had called Bringing It to the Streets, where we had a show called Stunts 101, where the stunt people from the born identity, all those born pictures uh-huh. would teach civilians how to do stunts. They would teach each of them would take a civilian, they would put them through stunt school, and then the end of the show was let's see how well they learned and we set someone on fire
0: <laughs> so it was like a fanciful version of Burning Man, but with a clock on it.
1: <laughs> yeah, we sent them down a zip line. <laughs> And, uh, you know, challenged uh, and then the second person did the same stunt and then the uh, stunt judges judged them and we had a winner and anyway, so so many fun, crazy shows that I did with uh, all of them pilots with Chris and none got picked up yet. Although a couple of them are still out there kicking around. So we should never
0: see. know. You never know. It's kind of like Jack and the beanstalk. You go and get rid of the cow. You forget about it. And the next thing you know, you've got the goose that laid the golden egg. And isn't that, <laughs> isn't that a great thing about the yeah. process?
1: But you know what's interesting? The one thing I would say to writers out there is don't always think in terms of selling your, if you have a show idea, don't always think of selling it in the USA. If you can get yourself to certain foreign countries, you might be able to sell it into a, as a foreign format. And what's hilarious is that then the USA would look at it and go, oh, look at this format you know, from this foreign country. Well, we're going to take that and 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 bring it to the U.S.
0: Well, you know, it's funny you say that. I worked for, for a while, Freddie Manikendam, who was the CEO of SEP out of Brussels, who brought the world the Smurfs. Of course, you remember the Smurfs. Yeah. Who doesn't? And the bottom line is that the Smurfs were a cartoon comic strip out of Brussels that got cycled through the European continent. And by the time he actually came over to the United States, he partnered up with the guys, you know, Bill Hammond. You know, at Hanna-Barbera and they went over to NBC and they cut their deal, but they convinced NBC that it was an original American production geared for Saturday morning. They picked it up, said it was great. And it went out as a Hanna-Barbera partnership as an American enterprise, but it had been alive, well, and prosperous in Brussels and the Benelux and all through Europe for like decades before Freddie brought it over here
1: yeah well look at I mean ugly Betty there's so many exact in treatment that was from uh, Israel I believe there's so many examples now of shows that well actually all in the family was a British series
0: yeah it was yeah yeah Yeah, I remember that. And uh, so was Three's Company was also, there was that triumvirate between Britain, Australia, and the United States in the middle. And I think it was the Taffner Company, you know, Don Taffner. That was kind of good. They could take cross pollination between what, which was already in the English language and then just kind of repurpose the comedy so it fit more culturally into wherever it needed to get parked. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, folks, this has been time spent, and I do have to thank you for listening. And Jane, I have to thank you for uh, joining us today. Jane Hamill, known for her work, of course, on Word Girl for cartoons, the nanny sitcom. And we didn't get a chance to touch on Jane's work with Vice Academy, but for those of you who (laughs) want (laughs) to... Oh, but for those of you who want to see what Jane looked like in her gorgeous uh, non-writing days, you can see her as an actress on Vice Academy motion pictures, of which she's got uh, quite a few credits. Watch,
1: you can watch me choose some scenery. That was, that, <laughs> that was one of those things where I, I I showed up and did the first one and went, oh, okay, well, that was that was fun. And then it, suddenly the the director, who was all of like 24 years old, kept coming back with sequel after sequel after sequel. I so said, I didn't know I signed up for a, a life sentence.
0: Well, I, I think he liked the way you look, Jane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it. But, you, know, you know, everything, a writer can have a bad day, Garrison Keeler always says, because it's all material. It all informs everything you do.
0: It's all fodder for content, isn't it? There you go. Really good. Well, Thanks again. Jane Hamill, Daytime Creative Arts Emmy Award winner, right here joining us today. And we look forward to seeing you all again on our next cast right here on the Writer's Block. Thanks again, Jane. You bet. Thank you.